Firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. And then moving on to Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You guys stand as we get ready to worship this morning.
Psalms that even before we were even thought of being born, that our days were numbered, that God created us in our mother's womb, and he knows the plans that he has for Matthew 6, starting in verse 25, we read, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valued than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your, heaven following, your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble.
Hebrews 12, for you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages could be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. And Father, reading about your kingdom and thinking about a kingdom that is not shaken, Lord, we confess that we are incapable of seeing that kingdom unless you enliven our hearts to understand it, to give us eyes that see beyond what is right in front of us. We are so trapped 
to seeing the things that we can see and understand and to making idols out of that and being consumed with those things. And you would call us to a greater vision of a greater kingdom, one that will exist long after this earth does. We've sung about it this morning, but as a people, we need you. That is why we pray together, come thou fount of every blessing. Tune my heart to see thy grace because we cannot see it if you don't lead us to that. So we confess our need for you and we ask that and we pray in the same way that you taught us to pray that your kingdom will come, that your will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray that that would happen in our church at Gateway Baptist. We pray for it in our city, Montgomery, Alabama. We pray for it in our nation and we pray for it across the world. That what unites us with every tribe, tongue, and nation in this world is the offer of grace and salvation in Jesus Christ. So Lord, we in thanksgiving for that blessing worship you today. And we ask that you would give us ears to hear. You would give us hearts to understand knowing that Lord, you would call us to lay down our lives. But when we lay down our lives, we will find greater joy in you. We will find greater peace in you. We will find greater comfort in you. And you are consistently leading us to pursue you in that. So Lord, turn our hearts toward you. Turn our eyes toward you and give us a vision of the kingdom that cannot be shaken this day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I hope you all had a great Christmas and New Year's week. I am grateful that we get to gather together this morning. I want you to find in your copy of God's Word, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. We had a two-week break from our study of 1 Peter during the Christmas holiday. And so as we start the new year, I'm excited to jump back into the study that will take us all the way till the beginning of July. 1 Peter chapter 3. As we begin this morning, I want to remind us of the big picture of this book, why God gave us the book of 1 Peter, what we're supposed to learn from this, and to look ahead to chapter 5, verse 12, just to remind you of why we have this book. This is Peter's ending of the book, but he tells us a purpose. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 12. By Sylvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I've written briefly to you, here it is, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. That God has given to us, friends, 1 Peter, to tell us about his grace so what we just sung about, we're reminded of the grace of God, but not just for us to know about intellectually, for us to stand firm in it, to live lives that are transformed by the grace of God, to become a people whose lives are shaped by understanding God's grace. Now, before our Christmas break, we looked at the verses that showed us how to stand firm in grace in specific situations in life. Peter got very specific and showed us how we relate to non-believers. He showed us how we relate to the government. He showed us how we relate to authorities that we have. And then he's focused in on what we saw at the beginning of December is how husbands and wives relate in marriage. That's where we left off before Christmas. Now today, he's going to kind of zoom back out and address the whole Christian community. And he's going to show us how do we relate together as followers of Christ? How do we as believers relate together? And I can't think of a more fitting passage or fitting challenge for us than this as we begin the new year. And I pray that what we see today in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8 will be our desire this new year, will be our hope, will be what we pray for, what we prioritize, and what we seek God to grow us in. 
So if we look at 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8 this morning, be looking for what is God's plan for how you and I are to relate together in the church. What is God's plan for how Christians relate in community? Just one verse this morning, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8, I can ask you to stand, please, in honor of the reading of the Word of God. I'm reading out the English Standard Version. We'll have the words on the screen for you. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your life-giving word, and I pray today your word would come alive to us. As we think about the new year and this, your grace giving us another year of life, Lord, we are grateful that we get to gather this New Year's morning to study your word, to seek you, to praise you, to worship you. So use your word now to transform us and make us in the people you desire us to be. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Now, to understand this text, there's several things we need to look at first before we dig into what all these words are we just looked at. First of all, go back to the very first phrase as he begins this, finally, all of you. Now, notice the word finally. Now, this would be like me at this point in the sermon saying finally and then preaching another 30 minutes, okay? He uses finally here as a transition because if you look ahead, there's still two and a half more chapters of context. This finally is not the end of the book. Finally here is a transition because Peter's been addressing specific groups, and now he broadens it back out to address the entire Christian community. He's now addressing everyone, and so he transitions it with the word finally. Second of all, notice this is for every Christian. Notice that next part of the phrase, finally all of you. This is whether you're in a place of authority or under authority, whether you're married or not, whether you're young or old, whether you're a new Christian or a very mature Christian, this applies to you. This is God's will for you today, just as it was for God's will for the people at the time. This is to all believers. Now next, notice here this word have. Finally, all of you have. Some of your translations may say all of you be, all of you should be, all of you live. Now realize when Peter wrote this, there was no verb there. This was added by our translators because we don't talk normally without verbs, but there is no have, live, or be here in this text. Literally, verse 8 should read, finally, all of you, unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Now, the reason the translators add it is to make it flow because that's how we would normally speak. The danger here in that being added is this can almost become for something we need to do. A New Year's resolution, some more kind of what I call white-knuckle determination. I'm just going to try harder this year to have sympathy and brotherly love and these things. That's not what Peter is telling us here. What he's showing us is that only God can produce in us. This word have is helpful as it is to make it flow in normal English. has the danger of this becoming a text for us to try harder in the new year. That is not what this text is. This is something that God has to do for us. Think back to 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 5, if you remember that from several months ago. 1 Peter 2, 5, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up. If you think back to that text, we're not the ones who build each other together. God builds the church. God is the one doing this. This is passive here, that he is the one who has to build us up together to be a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. God builds it. Our job is to desire it and to not break it which is the very thing we saw when we studied Ephesians several years ago. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3. We are to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. The unity Christians have is not something we can create. God creates that our job is to desire it, and our job is to not break it. So how do we not break the unity God gives believers? How do we not break the church? It's happened so often in our culture, and that's what the rest of verse 8 is about. How do we live out this unity that God 
gives to us. So the last thing we have to understand is the structure of this verse. Because when we look at this, it looks like just a random list of attributes we should strive for. That's not what Peter is doing here. You remember this back from chapter 2? Peter's using a poetic structure here called a chiasm. Now, I think we have on screen 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 17. This is, this is not today's verse. Do you remember this from, from about two months ago, back in November? We were to honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the emperor. Now, remember, this is a poetic structure called a chiasm. A chiasm, the, the two A's go together, the two B's go together, and it forms a co- coherent thought. So honor everyone, honor the emperor is how we treat non-believers outside the church. But then it goes to a higher point. How do we relate to God and how do we relate to other Christians? Those go together. And in a chiasm, what's in the middle is the most important. What we have in 1 Peter 3 is like what we saw there. It's a chiasm. Peter had some poetic tendencies, and he does the same thing here today. So I want you to see this week's verse, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. It's the same thing except for he adds a third level to his poem here. Have unity of mind, have sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. It's the same type A-B structure repeated. So now to understand what Peter does here, you have to understand things together. Unity of mind and a humble mind go together in Peter's thought. Sympathy and a tender heart go together in Peter's thought. Brotherly love goes together in Peter's thought. So if you want to think of this, if you can imagine as a pyramid, so flip it sideways in your mind or turn your head sideways if you need to, Think of this as a pyramid. The base of the pyramid is unity and humility. This is how we think about one another. This is what happens up here in our mind. If that's the foundation, as the pyramid grows, the next level is sympathy and a tender heart. This is how we feel about one another. And then growing out of those feelings is the top of the pyramid, what's most important. That is the brotherly love, how we act towards one another. Peter's using a poem to show us how we're to think about each other how we're to feel about one another, and how we're to act towards one another. Now, friends, this order is so very important because those actions, what we kind of tend to focus on, have to flow out of affections in our heart. Those affections in our heart are going to flow from how we are thinking about one another. Our feelings are, in fact, shaped by our thinking. And as you hear me say often, friends, whether or not we're going to have brotherly love is going to go back to whether or not the battle is won or lost in our minds. How we think about one another is where the battle is going to be won or lost. It's going to shape how we feel and shape how we act to one another. So I want us to kind of take that apart this morning to see how are we to think about one another, how are we to feel about one another, and how are we to act to one another. Now the foundation here are those A's in the chiasm here, the unity of mind and the humble mind. This is how we think about other Christians. So let's start with that first one at the top, the first A, that is the unity of mind. Now, some of your translations may say to be harmonious. Some may say be like-minded. The ESV that I'm reading from here tells us to have unity of mind. The Greek word here is a unique word. It only appears here in the New Testament. It means to have a common purpose. It means to have a common purpose, to be united in your purpose, to be like-minded in your purpose in what you are pursuing. Now, that's important because this, the word does not mean you have to think identically about everything. This doesn't mean you have to think identically about everything. One of the scholars I enjoy reading on 1 Peter is a seminary president named Daniel Doriani. And he said this, and I found it really helpful. He said, unity comes not from a creed or a law laid upon us, nor from a pretense that we agree when we actually disagree. But unity comes from relationship, respectful dialogue, and common causes. It's relationship and common causes. That's exactly what this word communicates. As believers... We're to look at one another in terms of unity, that we have a common purpose. And what is our purpose? 
to glorify God. That we unite together to glorify God individually and together. Now, this is important, friends, because that means we can think differently about politics and still be united in the church. This even means, friends, that we can think differently about certain points of tertiary theology and still be united in the church. We don't have to dot every I and cross every T. This is a call to be united in our purpose to glorify God. Now, remember, this is a chiasm. So to understand the top part, unity mind, we have to understand the other A on here, and that is to have a humble mind. So what is a humble mind? Well, humility, what is humility? It's considering other people more significant than yourself. It's thinking about other people first. One of the best definitions of Scripture is Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. What is humility? Philippians 2, 3 tells us. I think we have it up there on the screen. We have Philippians 2. Okay, I'll read it for us. Let me jump over there. Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Here we go. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, here it is, count, think, consider others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Humility is considering other people more important than yourself. And this is so important in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5, towards the end of the book. He says, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. And notice this, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So how are we to think towards one another? We're to think about others in terms of being united in purpose to glorify God. And we're to think about one another in terms of considering each other's interests more important than our first. So think about this diagram. If these two things go together, if unity of mind and a humble mind go together, we can't lose sight of that. God's will is for those to be united and yet they're often lacking in the church. Why is this lacking in the church? Well, friends, one thing I've seen over the years, depending on our personalities, we tend to emphasize one over the other, don't we? There's some of us who emphasize the unity of mind almost exclusively. We want everyone to be united in how we believe, in every point of doctrine, our political views, and our preferences over music, and our preferences over the color of the lighting in the church. The problem is that's not unity. That's unity around me and my preferences. That puts me at the center. But some people in the church are more prone to only focus on a humble mind. They just want everyone just to get along. And they're willing to overlook bad teaching and wrong theology and overlook sins in people's lives. But the problem with that, friends, is there are core doctrines that are essential for us to be united. Who is God? Who is Christ? How are we saved? What are the scriptures? We can't have a unified purpose if we have a different understanding of what scripture is or who Jesus is. There's also in Scripture very clear right and wrongs for how we are to relate. And so in the beauty of what Peter shows us here, we have to pursue both. Both unity in our purpose and humility in how we relate. That is the foundation for how we relate to one another. But from that place of a common purpose and humility, notice what grows. That's how we feel about each other. That's the B's up there on the screen. How we feel about each other. And there's two synonyms that are used here. The first one is, notice this is the first B is sympathy. Now, what is sympathy? Sympathy is caring for the needs of other, other people. This is sharing people's joys, helping bear other people's sorrows. So it's caring for needs, it's joys, it's sorrows. And this word in the first century when Peter writes this was used specifically of caring for family members. These are the joys that families share together, sorrows that families share together, caring for the needs that people together and so this would be the way I think of it as I was studying this week. Like, I love kids. I am so thankful that our church is so full of kids. 
But I share a special sorrow. One of my kids is crying. I Honestly, parents, I'm much more concerned about my kid crying than yours. Not trying to be selfish, but they're part of my family. Just like you have a greater sense of burden when your kid skins a knee than some random stranger's kid, right? There's a special sense that we love all people. There's a special sense of joy we feel when it's our family, a special sense of sorrow we feel when it's our family. And that's exactly what he's using this word to be here. This is our special care for the family. That we're to see each other, we're to feel about each other the way that we feel about family. Now we see this all across the New Testament. Romans chapter 12, verse 15. Do we have that one? Romans 12, 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. As followers of Christ, we're to be united in family so that when one of us is rejoicing, we all rejoice. When one of us is sorrowful, we are all sorrowful. We see the same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 26 and 27. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Then verse 27. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. But perhaps one of my favorites, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8. 1 Thessalonians 2, 8. Do we have that one? There we go. So being affectionately desirous of you. Now just stop right there. Talk about the feelings that Peter's trying to convey to us. Paul gets it right here. We're affectionately desirous of you. We were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our own selves, because you have become very dear to us. So go back to our diagram for this morning. We're told to have sympathy. We're told to have this affection for one another. But that's only part of it. He uses another synonym. He says we're to have a tender heart. Now, this is actually kind of funny, and I, I got a lot of joy in thinking about this word this week. Because in the original Greek, the word heart is not there. The original Greek, if you understand the culture of the time, the literal word is to have tender intestines, to have tender bowels. Now, why does it have that instead of a heart? Because our culture puts the center of emotions differently in that culture of the time. We have taken an organ that pumps blood through the body, and we've used it to communicate love and affection. It's kind of weird if you think about it. At Valentine's, you draw a picture of an organ in the middle of your body and give it to your friends, right? They did that in the first century culture, but it wasn't the heart. It was literally the intestines. The intestines are where the center of emotions were. So kids, this definitely makes um, Valentine's cards a lot prettier today than it would have back then. Can you imagine, oh, thanks, baby. You drew me a beautiful intestine for Valentine's Day. I love it so much. Unless we think that's crazy, again, it's just where your culture seats the center of emotions. At the time, the depths of who you are were considered your bowels, your intestines. And so when you talked about the depths of love you feel. You didn't stop at the heart like we do. You just went a little bit deeper and went all the way to the bowels at the time. It's showing you something not that you put on as a pretense, but if you tell someone, I love you from all of my heart, it's not just a pretense or hypocrisy. It's from deep inside. That's how they communicate in the time with the intestines. From the deepest, deepest part of me, I really am feeling these affections for you. You see this in Scripture. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32 has the exact same word, that we see here. Be kind to one another. Here it is. Tender intestined, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. From the depths of you were to feel this towards one another. You see the same idea expressed in Colossians chapter 3, verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, literally compassionate intestines, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. From the depth of who we are, not just a pretense, I'm going to go to church and smile and act like I really care about these people and I really don't. He's saying, no, no, like from the depths of us, we are to feel these things towards other believers. Friends, this is really humbling and brings us to the end of ourselves. God's not just saying, go put on a smiling face and do the right thing. He's saying, you have to feel in your heart 
these type of affections for other Christians, this type of tenderness, this type of warmth, this type of concern, this type of care for other brothers and sisters in Christ. Talk about bringing us to the end of ourself. It's not something I can just will to do this year. God has to change us because this is a command about our affections towards one another. But if you go back, <coughs> excuse me, to our chart for today, our structure of this, you have the foundation of how we think about each other, common purpose and humility. From that then flows in this sympathy and tenderness and affections for one another. And from those feelings then grow the actions, the top of the pyramid here. And what are the actions? If you notice in the middle of this text, the most important word, brotherly love. Excuse me, brotherly love. Now, what is love? You've heard my definition many times. You've been around Gateway. Hopefully you can start to answer this. Love is not an emotion. Love is not a feeling. Love is a choice we make to give of ourselves for the good of another. Love is not just a feeling or an affection. Love is a choice we make to give of ourselves, to sacrifice for the good of someone else. And we're to do this, it says, in a brotherly way, in a familiar way, that we're to do this as if we love our family, we're to love other Christians because we feel the affections for them, because we think correctly about them. Now, you see this all throughout Scripture as well. For example, Romans chapter 12, verse 10, you'll see a very similar command about this call to love others. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. That we are to choose in the church to give of ourselves for the good of one another. You see in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 1 as well. Let brotherly love continue. That's not a hard command to understand, but it's a hard command to live out. You see it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 9. This is one verse later than one we looked at earlier. Now, concerning brotherly love, we have no need for anyone to write to you. Why? For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. Friends, let that one sink in. Paul says, God is the one who has taught you how to love one another. God is the one who builds unity in the church. God is the one who creates in us love for others. He's saying, you've been taught by God to love each other. As you saw the same thing in our previous chiasm in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 17, in that verse as well. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. And it's what Jesus himself commands us in John chapter 13, verse 34, when he gives us a new command to love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. So what is God's will for us? It's to love one another like our own family. It's to love one another in the same way that Jesus loves us. It's to choose to sacrifice for the good of other believers. As I was studying this week, one of the authors I read said this so well. This, this author wrote, the Christian community is to be an alternate society where believers should not have to face the same kinds of insults and hostility that come from those outside the church. In a world of where people don't understand Christians and persecute Christians and make life hard for believers, this author says believers should not have to face in the church the same kinds of insult and hostility that come from those outside the church. And yet the reality, many of you like me have been hurt deeply by people in the church where this has not been lived out. Why is this command so often ignored? Well, friends, quite frankly, because we do not have, we're not, if we get, let's go back to our chart for the morning. We do not have love for one another it's because we don't have the right affections for one another. And if we don't have affections for one another, why do we not? Because we're not thinking correctly. So if we put the chiasm back up there, the structure for the morning, notice the flow. So often we focus just on the end result. We've got to do better this year as a church and loving one another. That's not going to happen if our affections aren't right. And those affections aren't going to be right if our thinking about one another is not right. And the reality is, again, the battle is won or lost in the mind. And so often we think like the world instead of thinking like Christ. 
I love how, how Paul Tripp says it. He said, here Peter is describing a life that is not driven by my personal hopes and dreams, not by my will for my life, nor by what brings me pleasure. And yet so often the unity of the church gets broken because instead of thinking correctly about one another and having right affections for one another and from which the actions flow, we're driven by our personal hopes, our personal dreams, our own will, our own pleasure. So what is the hope for change if we need to grow in this? I can't will this on my own. It's the grace of God changing us, the grace of God getting a hold of each one of us and giving in us the correct thinking so we think of others the way God thinks of others, so that we feel towards others the way God has called us to feel others, and from that, so we then act towards others in a loving way. Friends, if unity is God's work, then the love, sympathy, tenderness, humility, unity of all those things comes from God's work as well. So let's bring all that together. Here's the main idea, the main challenge I want us to see from this text. Quite simply this, God's grace transforms how we think, feel, and act towards one another. This is not a New Year's resolution text that we're going to try harder this year, try to do better this year. This is a call to run to the grace of God, to transform, to change how we think, how we feel, and how we act. Because the more we understand, the more we experience God's grace, the more we will see other believers as people who are united with us in glorifying God. The more we will see other believers as more significant than ourselves. The more we experience God's grace, the more we will feel sympathy towards other believers. The more we experience the grace of God ourselves, the more we will feel tenderness towards other Christians who've received that same grace. And the more we understand and experience God's grace, the more we will find ourselves willing to sacrifice ourselves for the good of another. So to begin the new year, my question for us is not go set a resolution to do this. My question is a question. Is God's grace changing me and you in these ways? We want to have a question for reflection. Is God's grace changing me and changing you so that I think correctly about you and you think correctly about one another? Is God's grace changing my heart to where I feel the same type of affections for you and you feel for one another that we feel towards our own families? Is God's grace changing us to where we are finding joy in dying to self to serve other people? And if you're like me, I suspect we all need to grow in this because I know I certainly need to grow in this. So friends, if our, not, if our thoughts need transforming, what do we do? You know, we run back to the word of God. But he's given to us to shape our thoughts so we think correctly about these things. One of the greatest gifts we have given to us is the fact that we can open this book and read God's will for our lives and see how God loved us and see the call to love others the same way. But friends, what about if our feelings need transforming? I guess it's a lot harder, right? I, I like checklists. I like being able to go, yes, I can do that or I didn't do that. But how do, how do we change our feelings? We can't apart from God's grace changes. So we run to the word of God and we run to prayer and we get honest with God and say, God, I am not feeling tenderness towards this person. I'm not feeling sympathy towards this person. Change me, Lord, and let's ask the Holy Spirit to come and to transform our hearts to where we feel to others the way God wants us to feel towards others. But what if our actions need transforming in loving one another? Yes, we pray. Yes, we run a scripture. But friends, don't miss the grace gift of community. God builds us unity together. He also gives us one another to help each other grow. And so if we're struggling to love others the way God has called us to love them, let's get into community to find help, encouragement, and accountability to do so. God's grace transforms how we think, feel, and act towards one another. And let's long for that. Let's pray for that. And let's encourage each other in that as we start this new year. Would you pray with me? Father, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful that you've given it to us and that your word transforms us. Your word shapes us. It molds us into who you desire for us to be. Thank you, Lord, 
for not leaving us wondering who you are, even what your will is. Thank you for spelling it out so clearly to us that this is how you want us to think. This is how you want us to feel. This is how you desire for us to live. And Lord, as we look at that, we see how far short we all fall. Lord, our thoughts aren't where they need to be. Our affections are certainly not always where they need to be. And Lord, our actions show that those things are far from you at times. So we just confess that to you. We confess that we struggle to love others the way you would have us love others. We confess that we struggle to show Christ-like love to one another. And Lord, you know who it is in each of our lives that we find it hard to love. And so as we begin this new year, God, we simply ask for much grace. Guard us from thinking we can fix ourselves or change ourselves what we can't. But Lord, you can. So I pray that you would give us a heart that longs to experience more of you, that longs to know more of your grace, that will then transform our thoughts, our affections, and our actions, so that we can be a people that collectively and individually bring great glory to you. So as we start this new year, we ask that you would be who we focus on, who we delight in, who is at work in us. So have your way in us, Lord. We ask for your glory and for our joy. In Jesus' name. Would you stand? We're going to sing, Be Thou My Vision. It's a prayer to the Lord for the start of the new year.
our closing benediction today to be what we read earlier, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8. This is such a great prayer for us as we start the new year. It's almost to declare this out loud and read it out loud together as a church to close ourselves out. So would you say it with me? Thank you.